Welcome to the Imago Day Community Podcast. Good morning, Imago. Good morning. Good morning, Imago Day. I was just trying to wake you up there, making sure. Uh, it's good to be with you today. I only have one shot to get this right, so a little bit of pressure. Uh, for those of you that are joining us online, we all just want to welcome you and give you, yes, we don't know where the cameras are, but we're clapping for you. Um, we are in a series called Authentic Spirituality, and we're looking at the life of David. Uh, as we near the end of this series, and we've been considering the life of David, um, there's, there's so many lessons about David's life. And what I love about the life of David is that David is not a hero. David, is, the story of David is not a story of a, a moral story, of how to be a good person. Uh, David is a very human story. There are times where David does good and times where David is really bad, but the point of David's story is David has a really good God. And that as he walks through his life, through great victories and tremendous failures, that the thing that he does right is continue to come back to trust in that God. I wonder as you walk in here today and as you've gone through your week, when you think about the question, like where am I with God today? What does God think about me? How does God feel about me? For most of us, we look back on what we've done, how we've behaved, whether we've been good or bad, we, we tend to treat God as someone that we are working our way towards. Someone that we're, and if it's not working our way towards with uh, good sort of actions, deeds, morals, then it's someone that we're believing, committing, deciding to work our way towards. And, and I want today for you to consider that what if the gospel, because I believe this to be true, is not about you working your way towards God, but about a God who has worked his way towards you. And that gives you actually the freedom to respond to that God, to trust, to believe, but also the freedom to be like a person of grace, a person of love, person of worship, it invites you to freedom because your security, righteousness, all of that stuff isn't based on your goodness. So just consider that as we look at this story in 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you have a Bible, turn with me there. Where we're at in David's story is that he has gone from spending decades in the wilderness to moving to really being at the center of the life of Israel. He is now king. He has brought the Ark of the Covenant, which was the way that the presence of God showed up in the midst of the people. He brought that right into the middle of his city so that God would be at the center of everything. 
And now he has sort of a relative peace from the nations and from war. And we find him in his palace sort of meditating on this new place that he's come to in his life. Remember, this is a radically different place. He's been on the run. He's been uh, uh, wanted for treason. He's been uh, sort of the bad guy. And now he actually has experienced all that God promised when he was anointed as a young kid has come to fruition. And he's experiencing it. And it's actually a really good time in his life. And it says this in verse one, it says, after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. And Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in your mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. Meaning you're in good shape, just do what you want. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build a house for me to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers who I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built a house of cedar for me? Now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending flock, and I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed by wicked people who will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. And I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. And he is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be his father, and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. And so you have this interesting thing that happens. God promises uh, David wants to promise God a house, and instead God promises David a house, uh, not the other way around, which, which is fascinating in one sense because we often want to repay grace, right? Like God shows up with this gracious act, right? He, he chose him from the 
pasture. He established him. He took him from obscurity and he brought him all this way. And now there's some sense in David that says, you know what? Thanks, buddy. I'm going to build you a great house. And God's kind of like, I think you're missing the plot. Like, it's not about the house. I've been cool with the tent the whole time because I own everything, by the way. I'm God. All of us have a challenge when it comes to receive grace because grace is so upside down from the word world that we live in. Uh, from the minute that you enter the school system, we are graded on not just our academic abilities, but on our behaviors. Like, we, nothing about this world is given to us by grace. I remember it was something I struggled with when I became a, a follower of Jesus at 18, 19 years old. And I wanted to pay back God so much. Like, uh, I, I would serve him. I would go into ministry. I would do something great for him. And I remember with, meeting with a professor one time, and he, and he said, Rick, God called you to love you, not to use you. And I remember being, like, so uncomfortable with that. Like, ah, well, I'd rather be used, actually. Um, because grace, like grace taps these things within us that are, are unfamiliar because we don't live in a world of grace. We aren't normally, if, if you were in, in a healthy home, maybe you experienced it. But for many of us, even our most intimate relationships weren't grace-based. And the language for what God is promising David here is the language of covenant. This is referred to as the Davidic covenant. And a covenant in those times, in that day, was a legally binding agreement between two parties based on each other's character and resources to fulfill their side of the covenant. The interesting thing about this covenant is that it is one-sided in the sense that God himself says, I promise your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. In other words, you will always have a king on your throne. And when you look at the scripture from the beginning to the end, you quickly realize that we have a God of covenant. That is the God who reveals himself to us in the Bible is a God of covenant. I, wanna, I want you to look at a few of these. So way, way back in the book of Genesis, we have God's covenant with Noah. If you remember the story, um, Noah is told to build an ark at a time where it has never rained, uh, which is a weird thing to build a boat when you've never seen it rain. And he does it. And essentially what that covenant that God makes with Noah is about is a covenant that says God is renewing the blessing of creation, reaffirms the image of God in humanity, 
and says, I will preserve humanity and I will restrain evil. And so God makes a covenant with Noah. And then we get to Abraham, not very many uh, chapters down the road, and God makes a covenant with Abraham and Sarah. And he says that he will create a people for himself out of this barren couple, Abraham and Sarah, out of their family line. And that he will bring salvation and give them land and there will be a new creation to the whole world through the seed of their child. Then as their family actually is born, Isaac and Isaac gives birth to Jacob and Jacob has 12 sons which become the 12 tribes of Israel and they grow to become a nation and then they are put into slavery within Egypt and God rescues them and, and meets them in the, the desert of Sinai and enters into a covenant with them between Moses and Israel and God covenants that he and his people would live together and they would be his holy people and he would be their God. And in the midst of these empires, there would be this nation that lives as a community of neighborliness and hospitality and worship in land that is filled with idolatry. And then we get to David, and it keeps getting more specific, and now God will establish his people as a nation with a kingdom and a king who have a throne forever and a king to reign over God's people, for God's purposes, for God's glory forever. And so the way that God's covenants work is that God pursues his people. He calls his people. And he puts his character on the line for them. And he makes a covenant, a commitment of grace to accomplish his purposes of life, of blessing, of salvation on behalf of those he chooses. And so the covenant itself is based on God's call and his character, which come before all of our responses. Before Noah says yes, before uh, Abraham and Sarah say yes, before Moses says yes, before David says yes, all of it, is God initiating, God proceeding, and it is all based on his character and his power to accomplish that which he has covenanted himself to do. And what that does is it creates a confidence and a trust in those that he covenants with to, by faith, follow, like to trust him and to obey him. The interesting thing is that as God covenants with all these people, the problem is that God's people can never hold up their end of the covenant, right? So God covenants with Israel in the desert of Sinai, and they continue to, 
to fall and to break their side of the covenant. The kings that come after David continue to rebel against their side of the covenant. And so God begins to promise hundreds of years before Jesus comes that there is a new covenant that is coming. In Jeremiah 31, he says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. And it will be not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my laws in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor and say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And so there is this promise hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus that God is up to something new, that all of these covenants before are pointing to another covenant that is coming. In Ezekiel, he also foretells of this new covenant. In verse 19 of chapter 11, he says, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them, I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws and they will be my people and I will be their God. When Jesus comes on the scene, he is uniquely fulfilling not just the covenant to Noah and to Moses, right, to, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, but he also fulfills the new covenant because he is uniquely created to fulfill both our side of the covenant and God's side of the covenant. As a human, he worships God with complete fidelity, sinless, wholehearted devotion. He keeps the whole law. And as God, he graciously provides the sacrifice so that God can remember our sin no more. Jesus becomes our perfect response to God and God's gracious gift to, the, to us so that we can enter the new covenant without fear and in complete freedom with God's law written on our heart by the Spirit. He is now our God and we are his people. And so God fulfills his covenant to Noah in Jesus, when Jesus comes and is the new creation in his resurrection, 
He fulfills his covenant to Abraham in Jesus, who is the seed who will bless all the nations. He fulfills his covenant to Israel in Jesus, who keeps the entire law on the human side on our behalf. And he is the son of David, the king who will sit on the throne forever. Somebody say amen. Amen. And so in Luke chapter two, chapter 22, verse 14, Jesus says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined to the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I won't eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks. And he said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink it again from the fruit of the vine until of uh, the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, this is my body given to you in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. See, God calls us first. Um, His call to you is based on his covenant. Jesus did the work. Jesus held up our side of the covenant. He took on our flesh. He lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death we should have died. He conquered the grave that should have kept us down and then gave us his spirit. And he invites us simply to believe in him. And that is followed by a covenant of promise where we are sealed in his own blood. That, in other words, there's nothing, as, there's nothing more powerful than the blood of Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can take Jesus's gift, his covenantal love and promise from you. There's nothing you can do to keep God from loving you, and there's nothing you could do that, that could earn it. Right? And then he changes our heart and he puts his Holy Spirit in us and takes this heart of unbelief, this heart of stone, so that we actually can follow his ways, that we can be his people, that he can be our God. And God did that. We didn't make that happen. He called us by his grace. He covenants with us by his blood. He made us sons and daughters. And he continues to call us to live our life by faith and covenants with us. I am with you always. I will complete the good work I started on you, in you. I will do more than you can ask or think. God calls and covenants himself to us. 
Nothing can separate us from his love. See, we live in a day where it is extremely religious. And and as much as the culture around us can be anti-church, it is still extremely religious. And, and, And if I, in my opinion, if I summed it up, we live in between sort of a lawless Babylon and a demonic Christendom, right? And, but both sides of that are extremely religious and lead with condemnation. Lead by declaring their own righteousness and condemning the other side. And the gospel realizes that I have no righteousness apart from God. Like, I, I, I have nothing to, to prove to myself. Like, I have no moral authority in and of myself to point fingers at other people. I simply have Jesus, right, who I am trusting in and who I has called us to lovingly invite other people into this world of grace. And in a world where there is a lot of religion, even though it is masked with other things, the gospel is this extremely different way of life, right? Because it's grace, and grace, uh, grace is so foreign in hostile conditions. But it may just be that it takes the hostility of those conditions for the true salt and light to really be salt and light, right? To separate that which is false from that which is true. And if you're sitting there today and you're saying to yourself, I'm not good enough, Uh, I haven't done enough, I haven't worked my way to God enough, you need to understand that is religion. And the gospel is God has come after you. And he has covenanted himself, meaning his promises are built on his character and he's used all of his resources to ensure that you can enter in to his salvation by simply trusting Jesus. And the question for me is like, well then how am I supposed to respond? If I'm not supposed to work for you, if I'm not supposed to pay you back, if you don't want me to build you a house, like what do I do? And I love when we go back to 2 Samuel 7, Just at the end, David has this sort of beautiful prayer, but at the very end, he says uh, this in chapter seven, verse 20, kind of the end of 27. He says, so your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant, all right? Now be pleased to bless this house 
that it'll continue forever in your sight. Sovereign Lord, you have spoken with your blessing. The house of your servant will be blessed forever. In other words, all that David can do is worship. All he can do is trust and obey. Like all he can do is simply go, uh, like, oh my gosh, I'm finding the courage to pray this crazy prayer that says, Lord, Lord, you are God and I am your daughter. I am your son. You have loved me, right? Knowing I don't deserve it, knowing I'm not worthy, knowing I can't make myself or get myself to God, but I can boldly claim that God's love is real for me and true for me because it's not based on me. It's based on Jesus and God's covenantal love.